European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 12, Focus Issue on Atrial Fibrillation and Thromboembolism, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Atrial Fibrillation and Thromboembolism, Anticoagulants or Devices Atrial fibrillation, albeit on its own not a fatal arrhythmia, is associated with a significant risk of thromboembolism that may lead to disabling or fatal stroke. Of note, stroke still accounts for 14% of all causes of mortality in Europe. Thus, detection of atrial fibrillation and in turn preventive measures against thromboembolism are of utmost clinical importance as again outlined by the most recent ESC guidelines. Importantly, the risk of thromboembolism must be determined in each individual patient with the CHA2DS2VASC score or one of the growing number of other risk assessments. Based on risk and other characteristics of the patient, the most appropriate preventive measures must be selected. In a first two-part review article, Choosing a particular oral anticoagulant and dose for stroke prevention in individual patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, Hans Christoph Diener and colleagues from the University of Essen in Germany review the clinical use of antithrombotic drugs. In part one, the authors again remind us that patients with atrial fibrillation have a high risk of stroke and mortality, which can be considerably reduced by oral anticoagulants. Since four non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants have recently been developed and compared with warfarin in large randomized trials for the prevention of stroke and systemic embolism, physicians have a choice. They are, however, also faced with the difficult task of selecting suitable oral anticoagulants for a patient with a certain clinical profile pattern of risk factors and concomitant diseases. To address this issue, the authors analyze subgroups such as those with coronary or peripheral artery disease, triple therapy, ablation and antiarrhythmic drug therapy, mechanical valves and rheumatic valve disease, or only one risk factor from trials, or only one episode of atrial fibrillation, of vitamin K antagonists versus non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation to identify those who might benefit from particular oral anticoagulants more than from others. Furthermore, as discussed in part 2, the choice of oral anticoagulants may be influenced by individual clinical features or by patterns of risk factors and comorbidities. Finally, the authors discuss the timing of initiation of anticoagulation and the use of non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant additional subgroups such as patients after stroke or transient ischemic attack, those with acute stroke requiring thrombolysis, or thrombectomy, those initiating or restarting oral anticoagulants treatment after stroke or transient ischemic attack, with renal impairment on dialysis, with advanced age, those at high risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, and finally those with hypertension. For practicing cardiologists, the authors present treatment algorithms for specific patient groups in order to help to promote optimal clinical outcomes. Another option to prevent thromboembolism in patients with atrial fibrillation, particularly in those at high bleeding risk with triple antithrombotic therapy, is device-based. 
This topic is reviewed by Manesh R. Patel and colleagues from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, USA, in their article, Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion, Rationale, Evidence, Devices, and Patient Selection. The authors acknowledge that oral anticoagulation is highly effective at preventing ischemic stroke and improving all-cause survival in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. However, they also point out that many patients are not treated due to either absolute or perceived contraindications to therapy, including bleeding. As such, left atrial appendage closure has emerged as a mechanical alternative to pharmacologic stroke prevention. Initial and mid-term clinical trial data suggest that left atrial appendage closure is safe with less intracranial bleeding and a net clinical benefit that appears to be non-inferior to oral anticoagulation. However, concern remains over the possible increased risk of ischemic stroke in the long term, possibly from other areas than the atrial appendage. Careful patient selection for left atrial appendage closure should primarily consider those with prior intracranial bleeding or recurrent serious bleeding who are not eligible for long-term oral anticoagulation. Of note, other populations, such as patients with end-stage renal disease, may benefit as well. Further clinical trials are needed to clarify the best ways of appendage occlusion, optimal pharmacologic strategies in the short term after left atrial appendage closure, and to identify patient populations who will derive the most benefit from this procedure. A complementary review entitled The Left Atrial Appendage from Embryology to Prevention of Thromboembolism by Giuseppe Patti and colleagues from the Campus Biomedico University in Rome, Italy, reminds us that the left atrial appendage is indeed the main source of thromboembolism in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. The use of occluding devices for the management of patients with atrial fibrillation requires a comprehensive knowledge of left atrial appendage structure and thrombosis. To that end, the authors provide baseline notions on the anatomy and function of the left atrial appendage and then focus on current imaging tools for the identification of anatomical varieties. Furthermore, they describe the mechanisms leading to left atrial appendage thrombosis in atrial fibrillation and examine the available evidence on treatment strategies for left atrial appendage thrombosis, including the use of non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants and interventional approaches. If a pharmacological approach is chosen to prevent thromboembolism in patients with atrial fibrillation, the choice between a non-vitamin K antagonist, oral anticoagulant, and a vitamin K antagonist is complex. To fill this gap, Eugene Brownwald and colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, USA, developed a novel risk score to estimate the therapeutic benefit of non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants over that of vitamin K antagonists in their fast-track clinical research paper entitled A Novel Risk Prediction Score in Atrial Fibrillation for a Net Clinical Outcome from the Engage AF-TIMI-48 Clinical Trial. Engage AF-TIMI-48 was a randomized clinical trial of adoxaban versus warfarin in 21,105 patients with atrial fibrillation. 
Cox proportional hazard models identified factors associated with the pre-specified serious net clinical outcome of disabling stroke, life-threatening bleeding, and all-cause mortality in vitamin K antagonist naive patients from the warfarin arm. These were used to develop an integer risk score. Performance was assessed by C indices. Kaplan-Meier analyses were stratified by three score categories and treatment arms. Over a median of 2.8 years, 15.8% of the 2,898 vitamin K antagonist naive patients in the warfarin arm experienced a serious clinical outcome. Of 10 independent predictors, the strongest were age, low hemoglobin levels, an ejection fraction of less than 30%, and non-white race. Event rates for the low, intermediate, and high-risk categories in the warfarin arm were 3.5%, 9.9%, and 20.8% per year, respectively. Both edoxaban arms compared to warfarin demonstrated significantly lower event rates of the serious net clinical outcome in the intermediate-risk and high-risk score categories, but not in the low-risk arm. Thus, the authors conclude that in vitamin K antagonist-naive patients with atrial fibrillation, the TIMI-AF score may improve risk prediction of serious net clinical outcome and identify patients who have a differential therapeutic benefit from non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin. These provocative findings are further discussed in an editorial by Anthony N. DeMaria, from the University of California in La Jolla, California, USA. Research findings are only useful if they are translated into clinical practice. In their research paper, Increased Use of Oral Anticoagulants in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, Temporal Trends from 2005 to 2015 in Denmark, Kasper Gadsbol and colleagues from the University of Copenhagen in Hellerup, Denmark, aimed to address this. To that end, they examined temporal trends in the use of oral anticoagulants as stroke prophylaxis in patients with atrial fibrillation and factors associated with the initiation of oral anticoagulants. From Danish nationwide registries, they identified 108,410 patients with atrial fibrillation between January 2005 and June 2015. Before 2010, 40-50% initiated oral anticoagulant treatment. From 2010 onwards, oral anticoagulant initiation rates increased, and by June 2015, 66.5% of patients with incident atrial fibrillation were initiated on oral anticoagulants, a 75% increase since December 2009. The increase in prescribed oral anticoagulants was especially common among females and fragile patients over 75 years of age and with a high risk score. The increased oral anticoagulant initiation was accompanied by the introduction and increased uptake of the non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants. By the end of the study, non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants accounted for 72.5% of all oral anticoagulants prescribed in newly diagnosed patients. Oral anticoagulant initiation was associated with male gender, age 65 to 74 years, 
few comorbidities and increased risk of stroke. Gadsball and colleagues conclude that since 2010, more incident atrial fibrillation patients in Denmark were initiated on oral anticoagulant therapy with predominant non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant prescription. The increase was pronounced among females, among patients at high risk of stroke, and among older patients. Non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants are widely used as stroke prophylaxis in non-valvular atrial fibrillation, but comparative data are sparse. In a further research article, Ischemic and Hemorrhagic Stroke Associated with Non-Vitamin K Antagonist Oral Anticoagulants, NOACs, and Warfarin Use in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, a nationwide cohort study, Leila Sterk and colleagues, also from the Gentofte University Hospital in Hellerup in Denmark, compared dabigatran, rivaroxaban, and apixaban versus vitamin K antagonists and the risk of stroke-slash-thromboembolism and intracranial bleeding in atrial fibrillation. In the Danish nationwide registries, 43,299 anticoagulant-naive patients with atrial fibrillation received vitamin K antagonists or a non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant, specifically 42% vitamin K antagonists, 29% dabigatran, 13% rivaroxaban, and 16% apixaban. Mean CHA2DS2VASC scores were 2.9 for vitamin K antagonists, 2.7 for dabigatran, 3.0 for rivaroxaban, and 3.1 for apixaban. Within patient-specific follow-up, limited to the first two years, 1,054 strokes, or thromboembolism, occurred, and 261 intracranial bleedings. Standardized absolute risk of stroke or thromboembolism at one year after initiation of vitamin K antagonists was 2%. Compared to vitamin K antagonists, the absolute risk differences for dabigatran was 0.11%, for rivaroxaban, 0.05%, and for apixaban, 0.45%. As regards intracranial bleeding, the absolute risk at one year for vitamin K antagonists was 0.60%, and for dabigatran, minus 0.34%, for rivaroxaban, minus 0.13%, and for apixaban, minus 0.20%. The authors conclude that among anticoagulant-naive patients with atrial fibrillation, treatment with non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants was not associated with significantly lower risk of stroke or thromboembolism compared with vitamin K antagonists, but intracranial bleeding risk was significantly lower with dabigatran and apixaban. Oral anticoagulation is the standard therapy for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation as platelets play a minor role in this context and thrombus formation is mainly fibrin-dependent. Inflammation and other triggers activate endocardial expression of prothrombotic mediators of the coagulation cascade including tissue factor and plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 and in turn contribute to thrombus formation in the left atrial appendage. While the first-generation P2Y12 receptor antagonist clopidogrel 
proved only modestly effective in patients with atrial fibrillation, pleiotropic effects of second-generation P2Y12 receptor antagonists such as ticagrelor have been described. However, whether these drugs possess antithrombotic effects on endocardial cells of the left atrial appendage is currently unknown. In a brief communication, which I, as in Professor Lucia, was personally also involved as a co-author, entitled Ticagrelor but not clopidogrel, active metabolite, displays antithrombotic properties in the left atrial endocardium, Giovanni G. Camici and colleagues from the University Center of Molecular Cardiology in Zurich, Switzerland, investigated this issue. Left atrial appendages were obtained from 14 patients with known atrial fibrillation undergoing elective cardiac surgery, including left atrial appendage removal. Left atrial appendage endocardial cells were isolated and pre-incubated with ticagrelor or clopidogrel active metabolite before stimulation with tumor necrosis factor alpha. Finally, tissue factor and plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 expression and activity were analyzed. Ticagrelor, unlike the active metabolite of clopidogrel, concentration-dependently decreased tumor necrosis factor alpha-induced tissue factor expression as well as tissue factor activity endocardial cells obtained from the left atrial appendage. Further, ticagrelor but not clopidogrel's active metabolite reduced plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 expression and enzyme activity in tumor necrosis factor alpha-stimulated endocardial cells. In contrast, tissue factor pathway inhibitor remained unaffected by both drugs. The authors conclude that ticagrelor, but not clopidogrel's active metabolite, reduces expression and activity of tissue factor and plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 endocardial cells of the in-left atrial appendage isolated from patients with atrial fibrillation, indicating possible local antithrombotic effects. Such pleiotropic properties of ticagrelor may reduce thromboembolic complications in patients with atrial fibrillation and should be tested further in proof-of-concept clinical studies. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.